Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. We start reading at verse 27 of Luke chapter 5. We're going to read down to the end of the chapter. Luke 5, beginning at verse 27, this is the word of God. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they'll have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. All right, well, before we uh, look at this passage together, let's pray. Father, these are words that we have heard many, many times. And I pray that this morning your spirit will so work in us that we will be able to see them in a fresh way. Lord, I pray that this morning you will really speak to us. You have spoken in your word. We know that. This is your holy word. And yet, sometimes because of our our dullness, uh, we simply do not discern your voice as we ought. Lord, I pray that you will open up our hearts and our minds, open up our spirits. Uh, Father, today... Let this be a day when we really do, by your grace, choose to follow you and dedicate our lives to you and live for you in recognition that you, in this life, lived your life for us, to prepare a way for us to become the children of God. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will help us to see you in such a way that we are led to honor you and praise you and worship you, adore you and love you. I pray that this morning will be a time of rich fellowship around the truth of your word. And Father, I also pray for those who are not here, those who are sick. Lord, I pray that you will have your hand upon them. Uh, Where there is a need for physical strength and healing, I pray that you will uh, impart that. 
But Lord, in all circumstances, we pray that your spirit will be at work to draw people close to yourself. This is the great point of our being here, to come to know you better. And I pray that this morning will be a time when you help us achieve our life's purpose of knowing you, the one true and living God, through your son, Jesus Christ. Be with us, we pray, as we look to your word now, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you were here for the announcements, then you found out that today is Valentine's Day. And if you were shocked by that, it's already too late for you. (laughs) You're a hopeless case and you're in probably a significant amount of trouble. Uh, So today is Valentine's Day. Uh, The creation of the CEOs of greeting card companies and chocolate makers. Uh, This is a day that they are very happy about because tomorrow they cash their big checks uh, cobbled together from all of the money that we spent on those things. Ostensibly, uh, the day is designed to celebrate uh, romantic love. And in our society, regrettably, uh, love has been equated with feelings. But love is not merely feelings. Uh, Feelings change. Feelings come and go. Uh, Sometimes uh, feelings are high, sometimes they're low. And relationships, whether it's, you know, a dating relationship or a friendship or a marriage or, you know, parents and children, whatever the relationship is, if it's just based on how you feel, then it is invariably going to be rocky. Uh, because feelings change, feelings come and go. And this is one of the things I think we, we desperately need to get straight in our society today, is that being in love and love are not the same thing. Uh, people can talk, when you talk about people you know, falling out of love, what they really mean is they've lost sort of the intensity of emotional feeling. But that's not what love is in the first place. I mean, that's a wonderful, glorious part of love, the feelings and the emotions. But love is far more pervasive. It's far deeper than that. It is wholehearted commitment. It is decision to serve, whether, frankly, you feel like it or not on any given day. Your feelings should not control you or dictate the tenor of your relationship. And that's something, again, that our society sort of believes, that your feelings should control how you interact and how you respond. Rather, our principled decisions to relate to one another in healthy ways should control our emotions. We should be disciplined, not at the beck and call of how we feel. One of the things that you see, thankfully, in Scripture is that God's love is far, far, far more than an emotional disposition. Uh, God's love is far more than feeling. Uh, God's love is action. God's love is a decision to put sinners like us, finite people like us, in a sense, not ahead of himself, but he is willing to act to do whatever it takes for us. So God's love is displayed in his service to fallen finite people like us. 
And in fact, one of the things that you can begin to see in Scripture is that God's love, the magnitude of God's love, is revealed in the objects of his love. That is, God doesn't just love people who will make him happy. God doesn't just love people who are lovable in the first place. Rather, God's love is so incredible that he sets his love on those who are unworthy and who don't deserve it. And God, rather than saying, you know, you need to be a certain way before I'll feel a certain way about you. That is, you need to clean yourself up. You need to be lovable. Then I'll feel disposed to love you and treat you well. God says, you know what? You're not lovable, but I'll transform your life. Uh, uh, my love comes first. You know, I will make you beautiful. I will make you someone who is morally pure. And of course, and this is the great vision that we have. It's metaphorical, but the great vision that we have of the future, one of the ways of looking at it is that Jesus Christ is the bridegroom who has come to redeem a group of people who really aren't that pretty or nice, but he's he's gone to work, transforming, purifying, so that in the end, his bride has been made into this incredible, unimaginably wonderful creature. Not because she started that way, but because of the transforming love of God through Jesus Christ. So this passage that I I read, you know, the, the, the two sections, the two units here, Uh, verses 27 through 31, talks about Jesus coming along and calling someone who is a sinner. This is the language that is used. And the religious people, the Pharisees, are fairly upset about this, that Jesus is having fellowship with sinners. Well, Jesus comes along and he sees a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Now, I'm not sure if you can imagine this. I know the biblical world, you know, in the Old Testament, you know, the Hebrew culture and the ancient Near Eastern culture, and then in the New Testament, you have, you know, Judaism, first century, second temple Judaism, and you have, you know, the Greco-Roman thought world. It's all very, some of it's very foreign to us. So you're going to have to work really hard to enter into sort of the thrust of this narrative. Believe it or not, Not everyone in that culture liked paying taxes. You know, I know, it's pretty different from today, right? So this is one of those, you have to work really hard. What what are we trying to learn here? Because we love the tax guy. You know, they didn't love the tax guy. Uh, In fact, tax people, I know this is hard to believe too, some people actually thought that taxes weren't fair, that they paid not too little the way we all think we pay. They thought they paid too much. And the way that it worked was, in certain contexts, the Romans would say, okay, we need X number of revenue taxation dollars from this region. And there, in some ways, they were, called, they were called tax farms. And people would come and they'd put in bids. Say, I can get you that amount of money from that area. I'll get you, I'll get you $10 million. Someone says, well, I'll get you 11.5. Okay, go get us 11.5. So now you've been authorized by the Roman army to collect 11.5. But how do you get paid? Well, you get paid by collecting 13. The rest just goes in your pocket. So the Jews hated tax collectors. Being a tax collector was synonymous with being dishonest. It was synonymous with being a thief. 
It was synonymous with being someone who got their living through extortion. But that was actually the least bad part of it. Because the tax collectors were Jewish. And they were collecting money for Rome, which was the occupying pagan army. The occupying country that was the enemy of God's truth. And so they looked at tax collectors not only as liars and cheats and extortionists, they looked at tax collectors as traitors, as people who were by definition unclean, as people who had rejected their homeland, who had rejected God, who who were just living outside of the law, everything for themselves to prop up an invading army. And I know we have to be careful sort of with the emotional rhetoric of this, but if you know very much about history, particularly during times of warfare, the people who are hated the most are not the enemy. The people who are hated the most in an occupied country are the turncoats who collaborate with the enemy. And so if you know anything about the Second World War, uh, and you begin to see some of the attitude that was taken in uh, the Netherlands, for example, by uh, for Dutch people who collaborated with the Nazi regime, and what other Dutch people thought of them, or in France, what people in France thought of about the other people, uh, about their French citizens who joined to help the Nazis. These are the people who are the scum of the earth. No one is worse than these people. And that's what a tax collector was. Nobody could possibly be worse than these people. And Jesus comes along. And Jesus says, you, you follow me. And he does. He gets up. He leaves everything. And that's exactly what you were told in chapter 5, uh, verse 11, about Peter and the fishermen. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. You're told about the tax collector. He got up, left everything, and followed him. The exact same language is used of discipleship here. So it's it's the fishermen and it's the tax collector, both equally leaving everything behind to follow Jesus. So what does Levi do in verse 29? He holds a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. And probably one of the reasons that there's a large number of tax collectors is that this was the only group of people who would have anything to do with them. No one else wanted to have anything to do with tax collectors. So when Levi wants to have a great banquet, his invitation list is kind of limited, uh, to other people who are doing this too. So he invites a great number of tax collectors and their associates. And Jesus sits down and he's eating with them. And the Pharisees look at this and they're outraged. They complain to the disciples. And actually, and, and the word here for complain uh, is the word that's used in Exodus to describe the children of Israel in the desert murmuring and complaining in their rebellion against the ways of God. And so the Pharisees here are murmuring and complaining about what God is doing, about what Jesus is doing, just like the Israelites did in the, in the desert in Exodus. Why do you eat with those kinds of people? How can you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now again... 
it is a slightly different context. But to try to imagine what this would be like, you can try to put yourself uh, in the position of someone in uh, New York City. Uh, just after 9-11. And you see Jesus, and Jesus comes along and taps the shoulder of someone uh, who's part of an Al-Qaeda cell group and says, okay, you need to follow me. And and the individual does. They, they leave it behind, follow Jesus, and then they, they have a, a great dinner who, who do they know? Who are their contacts? It's going to be other people from that cell network. And you imagine the outcry that Jesus sits down. How can you eat with those kinds of people? Don't you know what they've done? Don't, don't you recognize who they are? How can you possibly associate with the enemy? What is wrong with you? Did you not see the news? Do you not understand who those people are? And Jesus says, yes, I do. They're, they're sick. But I'm a doctor. Where do you want me to go? Yes, I do know who they are. They are sinners. You're exactly right. That is exactly who they are. Who do you think needs to repent? Who do you think needs a savior? Who do you think needs me? If it's not the the, the sick and the broken and the wicked, who do you think I came to reach? I don't I didn't need to come to reach the righteous people. You know, if you're fine on your own, why would you think I came for you? I've only come to heal the sick. I've only come to bring sinners to repentance and salvation in faith. So Jesus comes into this world to seek and save the lost. And a lot of people are fine with that, provided the lost look like them. Provided the lost aren't too lost. You know, as long as they're not too bad, as long as they're not those kinds of people. Let's be honest. Even in our evangelical churches over the last number of decades, there have been those kinds of people who, who do certain things or who have, you know, proclivity for certain types of sin. And, and we kind of chalk them up. They're a different category. They're a different class. And, you know, we're fine with Jesus working in people like us. But we draw the line with people like them. And Jesus says, no, you, you think of the worst kind of people, however you categorize that. You think of those people. Those are the kinds of people I came to reach. I came to heal the sick. I came to bring sinners to repentance. And this is uh, the glory of this in terms of the structuring of of Luke's gospel. You you, you can't miss this. If you're here last week, you know, we went through uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 26. And in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, you have this unit, uh, this pericope, where Jesus 
calls Peter and the other fishermen disciples to follow him. And Peter's response in verse 8 was, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. And Jesus says, That's fine. You, you come follow me. In the next section, verses 12 through 16, you'll recall, Jesus heals a man with leprosy. And it was a physical disease that Jesus heals him from, but it was also symbolic of uncleanliness before the law. This is someone who is unclean, and Jesus heals them. So leprosy was a physical disease, but it also symbolized spiritual impurity of the worst kind. Someone who was impure and under the curse of God. Jesus heals them. And then in verses 17 through 26, Jesus heals the paralytic. But before he heals the paralytic, what does he say? Your sins are forgiven. And everyone says, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's blasphemy. And they're exactly right that it's blasphemy to say that you can forgive sins unless you're God. Because only God can do that. So Jesus says, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, get up, take your mat, and walk. So Jesus demonstrates through the physical miracle his spiritual authority and power to forgive sins. So Luke has structured this narrative section so that you see Peter identifying as a sinful man but being called to be a disciple. Well, how can a sinful man be Jesus' disciple? Well, it's only as Jesus can heal and cleanse us from impurity before the law and only as Jesus has authority to forgive sins. So Luke is building his narrative thematically so that you see identify as a sinner, be the disciple of Jesus. He'll cleanse you. He has authority to forgive you for your sins. And we all go, that's great. I want to be forgiven for my sins. But Peter and the others, they're sort of respectable sinners. They're not the dregs of society. Did Jesus really come to bring salvation to anyone? And the next section is dealing with the dregs of society, the worst possible sinners in the mind of the first century Jews. In other words, Luke is showing you that there is no one who is outside of the saving grace and love of Jesus. Luke is building this case to show you, plank by plank, you are a sinner. Jesus is the healer. Jesus has authority to forgive you for your sins, no matter what. No matter who you are, no matter what other people think of you, no matter what religious people think of you, maybe especially no matter what religious people think of you, you know, Jesus is the one who has come to seek and save sinners. He can heal you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what group you find yourself in. It doesn't matter how wicked your heart is. He is a savior for you. Luke wants you to know that because the Holy Spirit wants you to know that. The Lord wants you to know that he did not come to save respectable people who don't think they need him. It begins with Peter saying, Lord, when I'm face to face with you, I recognize I'm sinful. I recognize that I'm wicked. I recognize that I'm not good enough in your sight to stand before a holy God. I'm not. I don't measure up. That's where it starts, individually before God, face-to-face with Jesus, recognizing we don't make the grade. But you start there. But it's not where you end. You start with the recognition that you are evil 
before God because you're judged on the basis of his perfect standard. Not on the basis of whether or not you're, you're better than, you know, the majority. You know, not on the basis of even sort of getting into the elite 90, 90th percentile of, of moral excellence, you know, in our society. You are judged solely and strictly on the basis of your conformity to the character of God's own nature. And when you see that and when you begin to recognize who God is, you can only recognize, Lord, I am a sinful person. But that's exactly the point. That doesn't preclude you from following Jesus. It's a prerequisite to following Jesus. You you can't follow Jesus until you realize that great fundamental fact. I am a sinner, but Jesus is a greater Savior. That's where it begins. A recognition of my need, my poverty, my failure is the prelude to a recognition of his sufficiency, his grace. All that he is, is more than enough for all that I am, no matter how bad I may be. Now that's love. Not on the basis of how someone makes you feel, but on the basis of what you can do to minister to them. So the Pharisees have you know, a follow-up question. John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. And Jesus says, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they will fast. So the Pharisees generally fasted, generally speaking, they fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. So they fasted twice a week. Now, fasting was also sort of a, a normative part of Judaism. Uh, this is something which is not done as extensively as the Pharisees did it, but fasting was not atypical uh, in Judaism. And in fact, fasting on the Day of Atonement was commanded by God. There's nothing wrong with it. I don't want you to get the impression that fasting was a bad thing to be doing in the Old Testament or anything like that. It wasn't. It wasn't at all. Okay? So this was sort of a normative part. But people are noticing Jesus' disciples don't fast. They just eat and drink. Like, they're just, they're just carrying on like there's something to be celebrating. You know, what's wrong with those guys? You know, why, why aren't they recognizing that there is a time not to be rejoicing right now? And, and, and it's twice a week. You know, well, Jesus comes along and he says, listen, well, the reason the reason they don't fast is because fasting would be wildly inappropriate right now. Because how on earth can you go to a wedding party? And now this is cultural. In Judaism, the biblical times, weddings tended to last about a week. which is a really long time. (laughs) So I think we've improved on that today. (laughs) But they used to last for about a week. And it was like, you know, everything stops, and it's just, you know, I I almost want to say, you know, there may 
this is crazy. There may even have been some wine involved at times. You know, there was there was a party. They were rejoicing. Spare no expense. Whatever you could do, that's what you did. Because there's a recognition that in stages of life, there is a time to mourn. There is a time to grieve. There is a time for that. But there is also a time just to just to cut loose and and enjoy the blessings of God and to be thankful for the gifts he's given you and to enjoy life. And a wedding is a time to thank God for what he's done. It's not the time to fast. So he says, can you imagine, you know, if, if we showed up at a wedding and and we just didn't partake, we just didn't eat, didn't drink, just kind of not very happy. He, that's that's not the right time. How can the bride? How can the groomsmen? How can the bridegroom's friends be sad during this time? It's a time for rejoicing. By extension, Jesus says, "How could my disciples be mourning now? I'm here. You you can't mourn when you're with me. Now's the time to celebrate." Now there will come a time, Jesus says, when I will be taken from them. Then they will fast. In other words, fasting is something which the disciples will do after Jesus is gone. It's something which Paul does. It's something which you find in the book of Acts. It's something which uh, I don't think is in any way inappropriate for our spiritual lives now in the age of the church. Having said that, though, this text is not about how to fast or why to fast or when to fast. This text, and sometimes too often it's taken that way. So we, we get to this text and we want to discuss fasting. The fasting is almost, it's just incidental to the main point, which is the identity of Jesus. The main point of this passage isn't when and how and why you should fast. The main point of this passage is that Jesus is the bridegroom. And that when you're with Jesus, it's a time to celebrate. And that his disciples can't possibly be fasting because they're with Jesus. And all of this has overtones looking forward to the great eschatological or end times feast. Which is characterized in the book of Revelation as a wedding feast. Because the bridegroom is there. And and there isn't going to be fasting there there isn't going to be fasting at that wedding feast of the lamb there's going to just be rejoicing and celebrating it's going to be the greatest thing you can imagine and so jesus says really what he's saying is this listen in a sense the future is now Because the future is me. Everything that's good in the future is bound up with me. So when you're with me, and that's the hope of heaven. It's not, it's not the streets of gold. And that's the, you know, it's not, you know, the mansions. And both of those things have actually been misinterpreted anyway. You know, I'll explain that to you later if you want to talk about it. You know, there's not the point at all. Okay, well, you want to talk about it now. Okay, that's fine. You know, it's not in the notes. This is all for free. But, um, you know, the point of the streets of gold is this. It's not just that God is really rich. Right? Although, although there's some indications there of just sort of the, the extravagant resources of the Lord. But the point isn't gold is really valuable, so, you know, heaven is really valuable real estate. 
That's not the point. The point is that, that when you're in the heavenly city, which is the holy of holies, there's only the, the dimensions of the new Jerusalem is are the dimensions of a cube. There's only one cube in scripture, and that's the holy of holies. And there's only one spatial area that is a perfect cube, and that's where God puts his absolute presence in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, and in the temple. So the New Jerusalem is the Holy of Holies. In the Old Covenant, the point was you couldn't get into it, or you died. In the New Covenant, the point is you can't get out of it, because it's everywhere. So you can't escape the presence of God. Now, who was the only person who was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year? The high priest. So if you're in the Holy of Holies, you're a high priest. You're a priest. It's the priesthood of all believers. Every believer is in the Holy of Holies. Every believer is a priest. And in the temple, in the inner court of the temple, Solomon had what? Hammered in a thin sheet across the floor. Gold. So to walk on gold was to be a priest in the presence of God. So when Revelation uses this image of walking on gold, it has nothing to do with value or, or, or a sort of ostentatious luxury. It has everything to do with bringing up that, that temple motif, that temple vision. Now you're in the presence of God. That's what it looks like. If you're walking on gold, you are a priest of God Most High in His presence. That's the point. It is telling us that we have entered into the actual presence of God. And that's a place where you rejoice. And so Jesus is saying, listen, when I'm here, because everything that's good about there is me. If you're going to rejoice then, you rejoice now. Because the celebration is tied up intrinsically with who I am. He tells this parable, as pretty easy to understand, you know, that you can't just take Jesus and mold him to the old ways. The old ways aren't sufficient anymore. It's a new era. Uh, because Jesus Christ has come. Regrettably, verse 39, no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. I think, because it's addressed to the Pharisees, is one of these sadly biting comments that there are a lot of people, even though the new has come and it is glorious and is surpassing the old, there are a lot of people who just say, you know what, we don't need that. We're, we, we're okay with the way things are, thank you very much. The old is better. We'll, we'll stick with that. We, we don't need these new ways of reaching sinners. We don't need these new ways of, of celebrating with tax collectors. We don't need that kind of a savior. We don't need that kind of a messiah. We don't need that kind of person here. We like the old ways where we were righteous and they weren't. You know, we like the old ways when we were okay because of what we did and they were lost. Because we, we liked them being lost. Made us feel good about ourselves. Made us think that the world was right. Justice was going to be done to them one day and we were going to see it and delight in it. Jesus, we don't need you showing up, turning everything around, saying ridiculous things like doctors are here to heal the sick. What do you know? Saying things like you've come to call sinners to repentance. We don't need that. Unless they're our kind of sinner. Jesus says, oh, you're, you're totally missing it. The new ways are ways of rejoicing and celebrating. They are glorious. It's the new heavens and new earth already here in down payment. 
They say, ah, the old's better. Ah, the old's better. Ah, the old's better. To the point where they will kill the bridegroom. They will nail him to a cross. Where they will rid the earth of him or at least attempt to. Because this is not the Messiah they wanted. But it is the Messiah that actually came. This is the actual Son of God. And this is what he has done. And it is this and this alone which gives any of us hope. Because if there is a type of sinner too far gone to be saved, then all of a sudden, if I'm honest with my own heart, I don't have any chance at all. And neither do you. If there is a type of sinner that Jesus did not come to save, then we are all lost. Because if you know who you are before God, I think one of the... It's not degrading to self, but to me, one of the healthy marks of of spiritual understanding is when you just stop comparing yourself to other people and you stand in the light of who God is. And I really think that when you do that, you... There, there has to be a sense which you say, before God, there's no sinner who's ever lived who's worse than me. Because I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to find the people who I think are worse than me. It's just me before God, me before perfection, me before an infinite standard. I fall infinitely short of an infinite standard. And so do you. And so we come to this and we say, oh, Lord, I could see maybe people like Peter and the fishermen being called to follow you. But but me? Is, is there hope for me? And here we're, we're, we're shown there's hope for you because there's hope for all. If you are a sinner, then there is a Savior. And what greater love could you ask for on Valentine's Day than the love of a God who takes upon himself humanity so that he is able to live and die for you? And we talk about, you know, the, 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 you know, the greatest display of love and the, sort of the, the romanticized version is that, oh, yes, You know, I feel so strongly about you, I would be willing to die for you. If you keep my feelings up high enough, you know. God says, God doesn't say, I am willing to die for you. He does it. He did it. You have someone who loves you so much He actually, in time and space, died for you. And it wasn't incidental to the relationship. It's what he came to do. He didn't come and then then love you and then sort of events spiral out of control and he ended up dying for you. He came to do it. 
That was the intention. That was the purpose. That was the point. He came into the world to die in your place, to pay the penalty for your sins, so that he could be the forgiver of your sin, so that he could be the one who showers you with love, so that he could be the one who makes you into someone who is able to be married at the wedding feast of the Lamb. He did it for you. No one can possibly love you more. No one can possibly do more for you than that. And so this morning, I don't know what your Facebook relational status is. And I don't know if you're in a relationship, if you're happy in it. I don't know any of that. But I do know this. No matter who you are, you are the object of infinite love. A love that surpasses all of the collective love in this world between human beings. You are infinitely loved by an infinite God who died for you so that you can be forgiven for your sins and be married to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. What love is this? What love is this? And it's real. It's real. It's yours. Well, may God help us. May God help us. That sounds strange, but may he help us to realize how unlovable we are so we can realize how great the love of God is that it is given even to people like us at the cost of the life of Christ. Well, let's, let's sing to him. Uh, let's, let's worship him. I'm going to have the musicians come and lead us in our closing song.